desire. We, we see the mind of God. And as we see the mind of God, the will and the desire of the Lord, we need to consider our ways. Because we have a God who's a God of change. Not that he changes, but he allows us to change. He allows us to repent. He allows us to return to him. Consider our ways. If there's any evil way, if there's any way contrary to him, that we would take that way, that path, back to him. And so even as God's people have rejected him, he's showing them what it's like if he would reject him. Now we know God never rejects his people, but there's situations and circumstances that, and I don't want to say that we just get into, we usually walk into or whatever it might be, and we wander away from God and there's that empty feeling in our lives. There's that times when it doesn't seem like, well, although maybe we're praying and it turns out we're going through the motions, but God doesn't hear. Maybe we're reading, but we're not really hearing from God. And it's those times that we need to take stock, we need to take inventory of our lives that, well, ha- have I rejected the Lord? I mean, and what I mean by rejecting, have I rejected the direction that he has set for me? Is there some kind of way, some kind of disobedience in my life that I have wandered away from the blessed blessed place of the Lord in my life? Well, if you do not serve the Lord, then you're going to serve the flesh, and you become like that which you serve. We are to serve the Lord Jesus Christ, and every day we are to become more and more like Jesus Christ. Because, well, Jesus set the standard for what a servant is. One of the last lessons he gave his apostles was washing feet of others. And he, he, he took that role of that bond servant and did that dirty work because it was something that was necessary. And we need to do the same. And it's as we humble ourselves, as we become a servant, submit ourselves to the Lord in the ways of the Lord, that we become like the Lord, if you will. Now, the timing of our section of Scripture is the same as last week. It's still between 605 and 597 B.C. It's during the reign of King Josiah's son, Jehoiakim. Josiah was killed in a battle with Egypt, and since Judah lost that battle with Egypt, they've come under the rule of Egypt. Judah at this time is a godless society, and they're dealing with confusing events. These events contrast their arrogant perception of who they are and the privilege that they think they have. This is something that we saw extended all the way into the Lord's day when the Pharisees and when the Jews thought they were something just simply because they were Jews. And Jesus said God could raise up from these rocks children if he so desired to. And so Israel, again, is trying to, well, we're God's chosen people, but now here we are under Egyptian captivity. When I say Israel, I mean Judah. The northern kingdom, they've been hauled off into Assyrian captivity. And so you'd have to ask, what's going on? And that's what God wants. That's the response that God wants from us when there's things going on that we don't understand, that we would truly ask of the Lord, what's going on? So in the midst of all that is going on, the prophet Jeremiah will remain God's voice of warning to his people because we're told very early in the scriptures, in Genesis chapter 6, the first part of verse 3, it says, And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh. Now, the Spirit does strive with man. God does walk by us and God does direct us, even in our sinful ways. But he says it's not something that is going to happen forever. Well, you can take that until the end of time, but you can also take that when God will kind of 
pull back his, the, at least the knowledge of his presence from our lives for the purpose of getting our attention, for the purpose of bringing us back to him. Zechariah chapter 1-3, God says, if you start over with me, I'll start over with you. So there's always that time of new beginnings in the Lord. There's not a sin here that anybody can commit that will be able to supersede the grace of God. The grace of God, it's his unmerited favor. Nobody was deserving of it from the beginning. And so the thing that I understand, the thing that I know is, is that the grace of God is always there for me. If I sin, if I stumble, if I fall, if I walk away, I can always return to the Lord because I know that he will return to me. Now, in this chapter, in chapter 17, we're going to see six specific national sins that are listed here. Now, what's a national sin as compared to an individual sin? Well, a nation itself can't sin. It's just a collection of people. But you see, this is prominent sin that was in existence during that time. And number one on the list, and it always seems like it's number one on the list, at least back in those days, was idolatry. And again, certain things that we need to compare to our lives, certain things we need to consider uh, when it comes to our nation and when it comes to our gathering of people. Idolatry is a devotion and dependency on anybody or anything in your life that takes the place of God. Now, we so easily think of statutes and things along those lines, but this can be inclusive of money, possessions, fame, success, power, pleasure, and advancement. A person, a job, a pleasure can be idolatrous. It can be idols in our lives because we so easily push away God and we depend upon those things. Well, we should have learned our lesson especially when it comes to finances and how fast our economy crashed. What was it, about eight years ago, whenever it was? How fast those things can go away. And when it's those things go away, when those things are whittled down, we come to the understanding, or at least we're reminded, that this life is all about us and our relationship with Jesus Christ. It always will boil down to that because one day, every person here, you're going to be on your deathbed. And it, nothing is going to matter. Not one thing is going to matter in your life except for you and your relationship with Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter how much money you accumulated in all of your life. Anything else that you depended upon, you'll come to the realization that it can do absolutely nothing for you. The second sin is unbelief. The womb of belief is the human heart. When we say that we have Jesus in our hearts, it's an oversimplification of the reality of the belief that we harbor within our hearts of who Jesus is. Now, they didn't understand Messiah or Jesus Christ back in those days, but God has revealed himself to them in a most powerful way, and they no longer really believed in God. And maybe on Facebook, maybe on the Internet, you've seen the surveys. The majority of the people in our nation, there's a lack of a belief in God. They don't have the Lord Jesus Christ in their hearts. And again, what I mean by that is they don't have a belief of God deep down inside of themselves. They believe that he's there. They, I shouldn't say they believe. He's there. They know that he's there, but there's not that belief that submits themselves to the, to the sovereignty of God. Thirdly, the third sin is the sin of greed. Now, when the sin of greed is mentioned, the idea behind it is the taking advantage of those dependent upon you for their own profit. They're taking advantage of other people so that they would be able to profit off of that. 
If you look back, and we're not going to turn there, but in Exodus, you'll see when God gave the law, this was something that he was very adamant about, that they were not to take advantage of one another. Fourthly, they have forsaken the Lord. They know what God expects. They just determined to go contrary to that. Fifthly, they reject God's prophet. Now keep in mind what it means to reject God's prophet. Everybody here, I assume, you have a Bible on your lap. How many people here how many people here have two Bible own two Bibles? Go ahead and raise your hand. How many own three? Four. Five. Oh, I saw that hand back there right here. Six? Any six? Sean? Roberta? Seven? All right, now it's become pride in your life. But anyway. <laughs> We have the Word of God so available to us. Well, they didn't have it like we have it today. Why? Because they had the prophet. They were dependent upon the prophet. So if you're not listening to the prophet, then you're not listening to the Word of God. And then lastly, they're profaning the Sabbath. And we'll get into that at the end of our study. But what that really means is, is that they're not finding contentment. They're not finding rest in their relationship with God. Well, how could they if they were committing all those other sins? So it just goes to follow. So what we're going to start out with in verses 1 through 11 in chapter 17 are really what's called a series of sermonettes. Just short sermonettes by the prophet, really from God by the prophet, that have a very stinging message, and again, something that we need to consider our ways in. Verses, verses 1 through 4, and actually what I'm going to start off is reading verses 2 through 4. It says, While their children remember their altars and their wooden images by the green trees on the high hills, O my mountain in the field, I will give as plunder your wealth, all of your treasures, and your high places of sin within all of your borders, and you, even yourself, shall let go of your heritage which I gave you, and I will cause you to serve your enemies in the land which you do not know, for you have kindled a fire in my anger which shall burn forever." They've kindled that fire. And so the idea, and we know because history bears this out, both biblical and the history book, that Judah was brought into Babylonian captivity. And all of their treasures, they were hauled off to Babylon. The land was pretty much left barren. Their heritage, this gift, the gifting of the promised land, for a period of time, it was taken from them. So the first topic here of this very first sermonette is, is that the people are culpable. The people are... They're, they're guilty. They have traded the goodness of God for the abuse of their enemies. Now, why would anybody ever do that? Well, you've done that. We've done that when we've chosen to turn away from God, when we've chosen sin over the will of God. We've chosen the enemies of God so many times over the goodness of God. It's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance, that causes us to come back, but it's just amazing the times, just little times, maybe not even the big things, but just those times when we have made the choice of that which is contrary to God over the reality of God. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 16 through 17, uses the illustration of Esau, but you see this mindset. You see his heart here. It says, least there be any fornicator or profane person or godless person like Esau. So this is the New Testament biblical description of Esau. Far be it that any of our names would be here, but they're God's description of Esau. He was a fornicator and a sinful person. He says, for who one morsel of food, for one small temporary pleasure, sold his birthright. For you know that afterwards he wanted to inherit the blessing, 
but he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. This wasn't a genuine repentance. This was just, I'm so sorry I did this. I wish I could get it back. It's not a full repentance before God with a desire to change his ways. If he did so, he would not be referred to as a fornicator and a profane person. And so you see that heart, the heart of those who turn away from the Lord for the enemies. And the enemies, once again, it's just that, it's that hook that is wrapped in pleasure. Whatever that pleasure may be, we can so easily go for it, but inside it contains that hook that leads us away. Such a people will lose, as we're told here, will lose their wealth and lose their treasure, and they have kindled the fire of the wrath of God. Kindled it. It doesn't mean that it's fully stroked. It's going to come to fruition back in Revelation chapter 20. There's going to come that time when it is too late. Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15, it says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. And books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. The death Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire, which is the second death, and anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So you see these books. There's the wrath of God, but there's also still the judgment of God, or maybe I should say the justice of God. And so on one side, you've got the Lamb's book of life. And the idea, uh, it's a roll. If your name is on the roll, the roll of heaven through faith in Jesus Christ. And if your name, look, and if your name's not on that roll, then there's other books that are open. And those other books, we're told that they're going to be judged according to their works. And these are the books for the unbeliever who will be judged according to his works. So if your works are perfect in the sight of God all the time, every single work, then you can get into heaven. But the problem is it doesn't say that anybody gets in that way because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's a picture of the justice of God so that we would know that God is true and God is fair when he judges. And so... What we see here, going back to Jeremiah, and we see it in the book of Revelation as well, is a defiled heart, the defiled heart of the people. Now I'll go back to verse 1, and we see what the core of the problem is. It says, The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron. With the point of a diamond, it is engraved on the tablet of their heart and on the horns of your altars. The tablet of a person's heart is the person who God knows you to be. The tablet of your heart, this is who he knows you. And and again, since this is a judgment, we'll look at the unbeliever. It's who he knows the unbeliever to be. That that he's a sinner and that he's far from God. As he's speaking to Jeremiah, to these people through Jeremiah, again, he's wanting them to consider the state of their hearts. Horns of the altar... Now, when it says horns of your altar, the idea is this isn't God's altar. This is either how they profane the altar in the temple or it's one of the altars on the high hills. But what is spoken of here is the permanence of sin upon the heart of a people that rejects God. It will not be ignored. Why will it not be ignored? Because it's etched upon your heart. 
we went to uh, Washington so many years ago. We went to Mount Vernon. And I'll never forget, I don't know when the tomb was put there, but George Washington, the place of his burial. And there was a engraving in the front of it that was from like the 1800s, or maybe it was even longer than that. But you just see the permanence. And as you go throughout Washington, you see the engravings in there and rocks and just the permanence of that. And the idea is this is a permanent engraving upon a person's heart. And the idea is that their sins are there permanently. A pen of iron, a pen of iron would be a chisel. Those are for the big, those would be for the transgressions. A point of a diamond, that would be an engraver's tool. That would be for the fine things. These would be just the sins when you miss the mark. But nonetheless, there's still transgressions and sins. And only one sets you apart from God. This is the permanent record of the state of an unbeliever's heart before a holy God. Now just consider that concept. He has engraved this upon the people's heart. And so there's a change that is necessary here, not spoken of in detail in Jeremiah, but it is in Ezekiel. In Ezekiel 36, you marry these two together, and what is said in Ezekiel makes perfect sense. In Ezekiel 36, verses 25 through 28, then I will will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all of your filthiness and from all of your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. Then you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. Keep it in mind that Jeremiah and Ezekiel were contemporaries of one another. Jeremiah quite a bit older, but nonetheless they were contemporaries of one another. I wonder if Ezekiel was aware of what Jeremiah had said here. And so God is saying, I'm going to take that heart of stone out. Why? It's etched with every rotten thing that you have ever done. But now, upon belief, you're a child of God through faith in Jesus. So instead of this heart of stone, he gives us this heart of flesh. Now, in this particular case, flesh isn't a bad thing. It's not in the flesh kind of a thing, but it's just a heart of flesh. If It's a pliable heart. And again, what you really see here is the doctrine of justification. Because with that heart swap, as God has given you a new heart, now he looks at you just as if you've never sinned. You have been washed completely as white as snow. Secondly, in the next sermonette here, we see a people contrasted. The contrasts are between a desert shrub and a fruitful tree, looking into the place that God sees and determines which ones we truly are. First, verses 5 through 6, thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart departs from the Lord. For he shall be like a shrub in the desert and shall not see when good comes, but shall inhabit the parched places in the wilderness and a salt land which is not inhabited. A desert shrub, it doesn't really live so much as it just survives. And people apart from God, they're not living, they're just surviving. It's the problem with what we have in our society today. We don't have a people that have joy in their lives. Why? Because they're just surviving. There's a lack of water in the area of this desert shrub and a lack of beauty in the shrub as well. These shrubs are found in even the driest places on the face of the earth. 
Now keep in mind with dryness and water, and, and this will carry through to the next illustration as well. It's a picture of the Word of God. This is a tree that just survives because there's no word. There's no word that nourishes it. Usually the shrubs, an acacia tree does as well. It's one of these shrubs. It produces thorns. If there's no word of God, then sin will rule in your life. Some may produce fruit, but it was very interesting. I looked this up on the internet. A lot of the thorns that they produce, they're hooked thorns. And really the idea is, is that the fruit that grows on them is an attractant. And you can easily reach in to get the fruit, but the thorns are, are hooked so that when you try to pull your hand out, it gets you. And so you see the trap, if you will, as it has been set. And so this is what God is comparing these people to. Maybe has this outward appearance of attractiveness, at least the fruit does. Bush is kind of ugly, but at least the fruit does. But when those come to partake of the fruit, we'll look at fruit in a minute, they really get they get hurt because of it or well if you're not a desert shrub are you a fruitful tree verses seven and eight blessed is the man or content is the man who trusts in the lord and whose hope is in the lord for he shall be like a tree planted by the waters which spreads out its roots by the river and will not fear when heat comes but its leaf will be green and will not be anxious in the year of drought nor will cease from yielding fruit And so we see this tree that is strong even in that area. Well, it's that area in the wilderness where the stream flows and the tree grows. A tree planted by the waters of the word of God would be healthy, it would be strong, and it would be secure. Its roots would be deep and reaching all the way through to the water. It will endure the times when the heat is turned up. It'll have green leaves. Green leaves are a sign of health. And it will bear fruit that is good for nutrition, reproduction, and identification. And it's the same thing with us. If you're planted by the rivers of the Word of God, you're going to be a healthy Christian, as defined by the Word of God. Also, you're going to produce fruit. And the fruit that you produce will be good for nutrition. Other people will be able to come and partake of the fruit that you produce you'll be strength within the body of Christ if you're rooted in the Word of God. It's good for reproduction. People will come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ as we're in the Word and as we're living our Christian life. But also, how do you know what kind of tree is what kind of tree? It's through the fruit that it produces. I have a peach tree and I have an apricot tree. I knew what the sign said, but I really knew that they were when they produced fruit. We're not real sure about the apricot tree because it's been about five years and hasn't produced any apricots yet. But nonetheless, how about in my Christian life? If I'm producing fruit, what does that mean? That means I have the Holy Spirit who dwells inside of me. What does that mean? It means that I'm a born-again believer. Galatians 5, 22 through 23, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Now, when we were in Israel, we stopped at this area. We were near the Dead Sea, and we came up to this one area, Elam, and it was the place where David was hiding from Saul. So a lot of what we read in Samuel's, first and second Samuel's, is where David was hiding when he was running from Saul. And I can imagine just the down times. You know, there was times when Saul was in Jerusalem and David was just out in the wilderness, 
and they take you to this one place, and you have to hike back a little bit. I'm sure we'll see that when we go to Israel in a few months. But as you hike back there, there's this stream that runs all the way through, and it runs all the way into the Dead Sea, and it just comes out of the mountains. And you're able to see the stream, not so much because you can see the stream, you know, from a distance, but you just see the greenery around it. And it was kind of cool, just kind of as you're walking up, you see the caves that are up in the hill, and the Bible tells us of the caves where David hid and, and whatnot. But as you're walking, you see the trees that are near the stream, and they're nowhere else. And those trees that are near the stream, they're, they're well watered. And so I can just imagine King David sitting by the stream one day and just looking at these things and just meditating upon God and what God has done and what it means to have a healthy Christian life. He penned Psalm 1, verses 1 through 3. Blessed, again, see that word, content, is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, the law of the Lord or the word of God. And in his law, in God's law, he meditates day and night. And so I imagine David was probably doing that. And what's this person like? He shall be like a tree, but not just any tree, not like those shrubs out in the desert because plenty of shrubs in that area, but he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bring forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. And so are we a desert shrub? Seems at times we can be. Or are we tree, a tree planted by the water? It's a tree that's planted by the water. It's a person who is in the word of God that's going to bear fruit and is going to exhibit health. Thirdly, we see a people confused, verses 9 through 11. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. As a partridge that broods or sits on eggs but does not hatch, so is he who gets riches, but not by right, by what's right. I will leave him in the midst of his days, and at the end he will be a fool. The idea here is, is our heart and how it can so deceive us. How many times have you heard somebody say, well, I just follow my heart. Well, that person is a fool, because our heart is directed by the flesh, what is directed by the world and under the influence of the devil. And it's that which is going to lead us contrary to the Lord. Nowhere in the Bible does it say, follow your heart. This is to dictate the way that you're going to go and how you're going to live your life. We are to follow God's word. We are to follow the ways that are set before us by the Lord. Our hearts are desperately, desperately wicked because it seeks after itself. It doesn't seek after others and definitely does not seek after the Lord. So instead of the heart being under the influence of the Holy Spirit... This particular people are influenced by their flesh. This reality will be seen through the person's speech, their actions, and their desires. And Jesus referred to it in Matthew fifteen nineteen: For out of the heart produces evil thoughts, murders, adulterers, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, and blasphemies. That's out of the heart, out of the inner person. The heart, it's desperately wicked. Have you ever caught yourself thinking something vile? maybe against another person, maybe it's just a random thought or whatever, and you think, where in the world did that come from? It came from the seed of who you are. It, it, it came from the heart. And Lord, give me that new heart and continue, Father, to cleanse the one that I have. A good-hearted unbeliever, well, that particular person is just good at masking the deceit that exists inside. 
But even for the believer, we are to be led by the Holy Spirit, not directed by our inner man. How many times has your heart let you down? This is what we were told that Jesus knows. Jesus knows the heart of all men. In John chapter 2, verses 23 through 24, he understands what's inside of all people, and that's a good thing. He knew what was inside of your heart. He knew the vileness that was inside of your heart. And what we really need to understand, that's okay. That, he'll, he'll work with that is what I mean. And he worked with us. And as we saw previously, he took that heart of stone out of our chest and gave us that heart of flesh. Fourthly, we see a confession in verses 12 through 18. A glorious high throne from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be ashamed. Those who depart from me, and this is God speaking through the prophet now, shall be written in the earth because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters. Heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed. Save me, and I shall be saved. For you are my praise. Indeed, they say to me, Where is the word of the Lord? Let it come now. As for me, I have not hurried away from being a shepherd who follows you, nor have I desired the woeful day. You know what came out of my lips. It was right there before you. Do not be a terror to me, for you are my hope in the day of doom. Let me be ashamed who persecute let them be ashamed who persecute me, but do not let me be put to shame. Let them be dismayed, but do not let me be dismayed. Bring on them a day of doom and destroy them with double destruction. And so you think Jeremiah would just kind of be, okay, well, not really seeing a lot of fruit from my ministry. We don't see a whole lot of people getting saved and all, but this I know is what God has called me to do, and this is what I'm doing, and so if God is with me, who can be against me? And all of that is true. But at times you just see how just the, the state of the people, the anger of the Lord, the futility that it can seem at times of ministry, it gets the better of them. We're going to see in a few chapters that he's going to make the decision that he's just not going to speak anymore. didn't last too long, but he did make that decision for a short period of time. And so he's overwhelmed by the magnitude, not just of the ministry, not just of people coming up against him, but just the sinful nature of mankind. You ever see the things that are going on in the world and it just overwhelms you at times? It just seems like we're, we're, we're trying to fight against this huge mountain that we're never going to be able to overcome. Well, that's okay. But what we really need to understand is, is all I'm required to do is to do the little piece that God has given me. That's all that Jeremiah was required to do. Just faithfully do the, the little place that God has called you to work, if God has called you to minister, just be found faithful in that little thing. If God wants to expand it later, then that's fine. But as long as we're all doing our, our little piece, then we see, we see God's ministry come to fruition. They've been practicing for the, the outreach on Sunday, and Paul was saying we had everybody show up, the whole team. Everybody was there uh, yesterday on Wednesday. And band is the, the, perfect, the perfect illustration for, for worship to well up. Everybody's got to do their little piece. The drummer's got to play his drums, and he's got to play them in time. The bass player, he's got to play his rhythm and the guitarist and so on and so forth. The singers all got to be singing the same song. But as long as everybody just does their little piece and is faithful with it, what do we hear? You hear it as if those drums, the guitars, the bass, the singers, the lead singers and piano, all of these things, you almost hear them as if they're just one because they're just working in perfect harmony. And this is the ministry of the Lord. 
And you're an integral part of that. Paul uses in, in Corinthians the example of a body. But we're just working in harmony together. As every member is faithful in what God has called them to be, then we see a church, we see a people, we see them fully functioning. And, and, and what God has called us to do, we see that coming to fruition. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11, when it seems like things are overwhelming, remember this, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Judgment of God, the judgment of God is a reality and the judgment of God is coming. And it's because of the terror of the Lord, because of man standing before God in an unsaved state, we present the gospel. We all do our little parts. We do the work of an evangelist to the capacity to which God has enabled us and the capacity to which God has called us. There's only one way that man can find rest from his predicament, and the example that is used is the Sabbath. This is the illustration of the solution. What we need to keep in mind as we come into this, well, this short teaching on the Sabbath is Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 through 17, where it says, Let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or new moons or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substances of Christ. And so as far as the Sabbath, the substance is Christ. What was a Sabbath? A Sabbath was a time of rest. A Sabbath, it wasn't a time meant to worship God. Now, we worship God in all that we do and give God honor in all that we do. But the Jew was constantly having to keep a festival, constantly having to keep a feast, constantly having to make these sacrifices and the proper offerings and all of that. And God says, take the Sabbath off. Take the Sabbath off and just meditate upon me. Meditate upon the things that I have done. Meditate upon my goodness, my kindness, my graciousness, my mercy, and my love. It's something that we need to do more of. There's people that say that you're supposed to worship God on the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was not intended to be a time of worship for God. So when somebody says, you go to church on Sunday, the Sabbath is supposed to be Saturday, then you should tell them, well, you should be sitting home if you want to keep the Sabbath and not journeying away from your house. But nonetheless, we understand the fulfillment is Jesus Christ. And it's those times that we've got to stop and we've got to meditate upon the goodness of God. Verses 19 through 20. Thus the Lord said to me, Go and stand in the gate of the children of the people by which the kings of Judah come in and by which they go out and in all the gates of Jerusalem and say to them, Hear the word of the Lord, you kings of Judah and all Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem who enter by these gates. And so this is a message to all of those who are of Jerusalem. And the idea is it's affecting the leaders and he's speaking to the leaders and it's to filter down through all the people. And the first thing that he's told is is to sanctify the Sabbath within your heart hearts verses 21 through 23 thus says the lord take heed to yourselves pay attention consider your ways and bear no burdens on the sabbath day nor bring in by the gates of jerusalem nor carry a burden out of your houses on the sabbath day nor do any work but hallow consider it holy the sabbath day as i commanded your fathers but they did not obey nor incline their ears but made their necks stiff that they might not hear nor receive instruction. They weren't depending upon God for their provision for that Sabbath day. And so in that Sabbath day, there's this element of trusting in God for his provision and for his goodness to all the land. But these people were filled with what they were able to do for themselves. So once again, there's absolutely no trust in God and what they're doing. What are we to do? 
Well, the psalmist said it perfectly in Psalm 46, verses 10 through 11. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted amongst the nations and I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge, our peace, our comfort. Selah. Selah. You remember the Psalms. Those, that's the Hebrew songbook. Selah is a musical interlude for the purpose of interpretation. That you would stop and you would meditate upon what was just previously said. Be still and know that I am God. Have you take it, taken still time in the midst of all the busyness? Have you ever just stopped? and just reminded yourself that God is my God, that God has brought me into his kingdom. And just count the blessings of what God has bestowed upon you because, again, we get so busy and we so easily forget. And then secondly, we're told, when necessary, set a new course, verses 24 through 26. And it shall be, if you heed me carefully, says the Lord, to bring no burden through the gates of the city on the Sabbath day, but hallow the Sabbath day, do no work in it, then shall enter the gates of the city kings and princes, sitting on the throne to David, riding in chariots and on horses, they and their princes, accompanied by men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and this city shall remain forever, and they shall come from the cities of Judah and from the Uh, places around Jerusalem from the land of Benjamin and from the lowland and from the mountains and from the lowland, from the mountains and from the south, bringing forth burnt offerings and sacrifices, grain offerings and incense, bringing sacrifices of praise to the house of the Lord. If you come back to me, if you turn your heart back to me, God is saying, after all that we've been through in the beginning of this chapter, God's saying, I'll provide a peaceful existence for my people. If you're loyal to me, you're going to be able to worship me in peace. You're going to be able to go about your commerce. You're going to be able to conduct your lives, to raise children and to do all of these things. But again, if you reject God, then God's going to show you what it feels like for him to reject you. So stop going in the direction that you are heading and go in God's good way. And the whole idea, once again, boils down to repenting. I'm not going to go there, but in 1 Kings 21, 25 through 29, Ahab, judgment was pronounced upon him, and he repented, and God relented. For this, one of the most evil kings that ever existed. Now, he ended up backsliding, going back to his evil ways, but even he was able to repent, and God honored his repentance for a period of time. And then we just get final words of warning, verses 27 through 20, well, verse 27. But if you will not heed me to hallow the Sabbath day, such as not carrying a burden when entering the gates of Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, then I will kindle a fire in its gates, and it shall devour the places of Jerusalem, and it shall not be quenched. When judgment comes, it's going to be a divine judgment that no man can stop. Once again, we know what's being spoken of here is Babylon. Ministry. Living a life in the Lord is all about a price we pay in obedience to God who has called us to a crown that we hope to obtain one day. He's called us to this crown, this amazing crown that he is going to enable us to reign with him in kings and priests. But as for today, just continue to conduct our lives in obedience to the Lord. The things that we read about were a reality. They came about in, in, in Jeremiah's day. And even today we'll think, well, We're Christians. It can't happen to me. But the Lord disciplines those whom he loves. And we've got to understand the reality of these things. 
Don't give up. Don't go weary. Don't grow weary of doing good. Continue to push forward in your Christian life, and I guarantee you, you'll reap the benefits of it. Father, once again, we just thank you, God, for your word. And Lord, just this opportunity to gather together in the middle of the week and to be able to just rejoice, to meditate on your word, to realize your goodness, to understand, Father, those who have failed in the past and what has come upon them, and to take heed to these things. And Father, to make changes where changes are made, are needed to be made, and and to come back to you, Father. May we truly consider our ways. And so, Father, are our ways lining up with the direction that you have given us for our ways? I pray that you would speak to every person here who has partaken of this message and that, Lord, we would just simply see your goodness to a people's hearts who are sold out to obedience, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you all stand, please? This Sunday, we have a different schedule. This Sunday, we are having services at 8.30 and 11 o'clock. It's our outreach. It's not going to be much of an outreach if nobody invites anybody. And so, invite somebody to church. Invite somebody to church and to partake of the word as it goes out and just see what God will do. It's Christmas time. People will still come to church during Christmas time. Let's use it for the glory of God. God bless you guys. Good night.